Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. We're in the last full week of October. Halloween's right around the corner. Thanksgiving is a, f- a month or so away, which is kind of crazy to think about. We're at the tail end of 2022, but a lot still going on before we even think about any of that as we get into November of this year. But a lot of stuff going on around the world of Hollywood right now. A big week, week and a half of news that is really just kind of transforming a lot of the major producers and a lot of the major game changers in the industry right now. So I'm going to be getting into DC and the big news coming out of there as they finally have brand new leadership as they look to see where that will take them in the future of their franchise. Also, some major news going around the corner in a galaxy far, far away for a brand new Star Wars project in the film sphere. We, of course, had a lot of stuff going on in TV, but of course, the long-standing question is when we're going to finally have Star Wars back on the big screen, and we could be getting that sooner rather than later. Also going to be getting into some major trending trailers that came out over this past week and a whole lot more, but the first thing that I do want to start out with, of course, is going over to the review corner of the Sam Vassell podcast as a few major TV shows wrapped up over the last week or so, and I want to start off with talking about probably the biggest one of the late summer early fall window and that of course is the Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon which is of course set around 200 or so years before the events of Game of Thrones and focuses on House Targaryen and their reign over the world of Westeros and this was a show that I've done a few episodic reviews here and there for the show. I did one in the beginning. I did one at the midway point. If there was any big major episode like episode eight that happened, I did a little bit of review the week after or a few days after the episode premiered. And since we finally had the finale air this past Sunday, I wanted to kind of give my my non-spoiler thoughts on the overall season that we got of House of the Dragon. And it's already been renewed for a second season. So there's more coming along the way, but just focusing on what what we got in this season. I loved it. And I've been saying it for the last couple of weeks when talking about each episode that each one either continues to get better or keeps a great kind of of tone and a great consistency level from beginning to end. And this it was just an amazing season of TV. Arguably, I would say one of the best first seasons of TV. And I would kind of put it toe to toe or maybe, maybe even surpass it above the first season of the original series. And no, I'm not saying that House of the Dragon is better than Game of Thrones overall. I'm not saying that. But what was kind of established and focused on in this first season, I thought was really, really well done. I think it it set the table. It was a great establishing season for what we're about to get in future seasons to come with this kind of Dance of the Dragons, which is well known if you follow kind of Game of Thrones, Westerosian history from the great George R. R. Martin. That's the kind of conflict that we're getting into with this show. And this season set the table for that. And I think they did a great job of really kind of establishing the characters, the conflict, and made you feel for these journeys as it is setting up for the coming conflict to come in season two and beyond. And I think one of the things when we talk about Game of Thrones overall in that first season is that it did a great job of setting House Lannister, House Stark, the Targaryens. I think what 
this season was able to do was just kind of singularly focus on this one particular story and that all these characters that we have going on, all these time jumps are focusing on the story that is in front of us. And I know some people might not like the fact that it feels a little bit kind of of simplified, a little bit limiting. We're not going out to the grand world of Westeros like we did in Game of Thrones. But I think that if you want to try to do something different in this world, I think that this is the best way to go about that is focusing on each of these characters and identifying who the key main players are that we should be focusing on once this show most likely and hearing from the showrunner Ryan Condal, the second season is going to go back to that kind of Game of Thrones level of expanding out to all these different places and introduce all these different characters but we know who the main characters are and I think this season is a do it did a great job of establishing that and I think this was also a great season of risks within Game of Thrones and within TV of again having all these multiple time jumps all these character changes it could have been wonky it could have been clunky and and you might not connect with certain characters that are playing or certain actors that are playing these characters and it might have felt out of place but it worked and I think when you get to the final stretch of episodes between episode 8 and 10 I think if you're feeling for these characters and the emotion of the journey that we've been on then I think it's a credit to what the writers directors showers did in those first five or six episodes prior to that in getting us ready to this eventual finale that we got in episode 10 and I think that's a credit to being able to have the 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 characters or the actors come in embody these characters and make a seamless transition and having us having us feel for them and connect with them maybe in, in certain ways or maybe we're rooting against them or for them and I, and I think it was a testament again to everyone behind the scenes but it also is a testament to everyone that was in front of the camera and specifically i gotta give a shout out to emma darcy in which they do a phenomenal job as rhaenyra targaryen and also of course to her younger counterpart in millie alcock who was really the kind of star of the show in the first five episodes of the season she was amazing emily carey who plays a young allison hightower they were amazing as well and then have the transition over to olivia cook she was incredible as well so they really kind of the crux of the story and if you don't buy into what they are doing i don't think the show really works and i think a lot of people bought into it and i think a lot of people are ready to see where their story goes from here matt smith again from the very beginning the first episode he is just incredible and i think he brings in the long run of this show i think damon targaryen is going to be a character that is remembered amongst the high ranks of game of Thrones characters to come to the tv screen i think he'll be up there with Tyrion, with Jon snow with 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 with, with rob and, and 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 daenerys and all these different characters that we know and love i think he's one of those characters that just brings a complexity where you want to root for him but he has this kind of dark side that you you don't want to support but it's just something about him that attracts people to him in some kind of weird way and matt smith does an incredible job of towing that line so perfectly and for somebody like him with this caliber of talent it's great to see him finally get a role in a major franchise that is suited for his work and so i'm really excited to see where he takes damien in season two and then of course the person who i think should get an emmy win out of everybody here and i think a lot of people are going to get emmy nominations across the board 
with this show, but the one who, who I think deserves a win out of everybody is is Patty Constantine, who played King Viserys, especially if you see his basically his Force Consideration episode in episode eight of this season. He he knocks it out of the park, and again, I think it's a testament to the journey that he takes from the first episode to where he is in episode eight in his in his final in his final appearance and that journey that he goes on and really trying to mend the fences of this break within the Targaryen household and it's just heartbreaking but he also brought a level of, of kind of, of 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 levity and lightness to it as well and I think for all the times that we see awful kings and rulers within Westeros, especially even going back to the Game of Thrones show, he was one of the great ones. And he was somebody who, again, had his faults for sure, but was truly one of the kings that was really trying to do good within the the world uh, of Westeros. I think Patty Constantine did an outstanding job uh, of delivering that from the very beginning. So I'm really excited to see where the show goes from here. I think the writing was incredible. I think Ryan Conkle has a great pulse on this show, on the world of Westeros, including working with people like Miguel Sapochnik, who I'm sad to see him go after this season, even though he's going to be an executive producer for the remaining seasons, wherever this goes. doesn't really mean much when you're an executive producer for the most part, but it's going to be very interesting to see what Ryan Condal does. Maybe, hopefully, one day we get Miguel to kind of come back and direct some episodes. But again, it's no surprise. He he wants to do his own thing, and that's understandable. And I think Ryan also working with George R. R. Martin, getting his version of this story kind of fitting in within the world of this it, it just all works and, and i think game of thrones is is back i think that people are going to gravitate towards this show i think it is exactly the kind of show that can that can pull people back in who maybe were on the fence after feeling let down by the finale of game of thrones in season eight i think this goes to the crux of what people love about this franchise which is about the power the politics the 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 kingsmanship of the iron throne and the power that it, it presides over people i think that is what attracted people to the show. I think that's what made it great. Even though people, I think, loved some of the stuff that that were happening at the wall and all that kind of stuff, it was really the battle for the Iron Throne that gravitated people towards the show. And I think this does a great job of really kind of honing in on that aspect of the of this world of this universe and i'm excited to see that continue on in season two which again i think is going to go bigger bolder ryan connell has talked about that so i'm really excited to see what they do also the vfx with the dragons and and just overall the 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 production value of the show was top-notch per usual with this franchise and again i'm excited to see more as we move along here and then moving from one franchise to the next going from westeros to a galaxy far far away i want to do a little review on episode eight of andor which of course is the latest live action star wars show on disney plus right now and again like house of the dragon i have been high praising Andor for as long as I possibly can. I absolutely love this show. It's slowly creeping on my list as surpassing Mando as my favorite live action Star Wars show in, in, in of all time right now. And again, that's a short list considering what's on there right now. But considering how great, how much I love Mando, how great I think Mando is, what Andor is doing is just on another level between the writing, the direction, production value, 
the way that the that the writing is really the kind of writing that I wanted Star Wars to get to, which is on that kind of Game of Thrones level. And I think it, it could get there between the politics and the world of the Star Wars. You can do that. And I think Tony Gilroy and his writing staff and his writer's room are doing a great job of utilizing that and really kind of getting into a lot of these characters that we knew a little bit about, but we didn't know a whole lot about. Going into what who Mon Mothma is a lot more. Going into Cassian a little bit more. And then getting into new characters like Luthen and, 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 and Bix, played by Adriana Ajorna. I think they're all incredible. And this episode, episode eight, does an amazing job of continuing that down the road. And I think that this show is just grounded in great realism and continues what George was kind of striving for with Star Wars and, and, and also what inspired him with Star Wars, which was especially when it came to the Empire going into World War II and, and the Nazi regime. This feels like that. And Tony Gilroy really kind of took from that, I think, a little bit and utilized it down to what it means for everyday people to go through the regime of an empire. And that's people being accused of stuff that they didn't commit, going to prison, doing all this kind of stuff. And, and I, I'm just really, really pumped for what they've been doing and also not to get into any major spoilers but there's some great I think twists and turns and surprises that happen in episode 8 in particular that they don't really kind of of glorify they don't really kind of make a big deal of it it happens and you're like wait who, who's here what's going on here what's this and, and it takes a second to kind of recalibrate but it's really kind of cool and it just kind of it's all about the story and I think what they do with this with the reveal with the surprise that kind of comes in in this episode is indicative of that and I think if this was Obi-Wan not to throw shade on them but I think if this was some other Star Wars show it would have been like here's here's this big surprise they don't do that here and it just kind of goes with the story this is a character that's a part of Andor's journey and it works so incredibly well and so I'm really really excited for where they're going with this particular story Storyline, Of course, they've been kind of doing it within this kind of three-pod system where each is – it's telling this overarching story. But within those that overarching story, it's kind of three mini stories that are happening within each. And, and episode seven was kind of a, a transition episode going from the last mission to where we are now. And now this one is kind of beginning the development of this new little mini story that we're going to be getting into. So I'm really excited about where we're going to be going the final four episodes. I love this show. I love what it's doing. It's 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 my favorite of the bunch of Star Wars shows that have come out this year. And, and depending on where the last four episodes go, it could very well eclipse Mandalorian. Even though Mandalorian has two seasons right now and it has a little bit more of a resume than Andor, I think just within these 12 episodes, Andor is doing what I hoped a lot of these other Star Wars shows would do right now. And I think it's owning up to that spy thriller element that Tony Gilroy is synonymous with when working on, on franchises and movies such as the Bourne films. So I think it, it, he's bringing his own cachet to it while also, I think, honoring some great stuff within the Star Wars universe as well. So that is my review for episode eight of Andor. And then to wrap up my review corner on the San Basil podcast today, I want to continue and stay in the galaxy far, far away and talk about a the brand new anthology show that just came out for Star Wars yesterday, and that is the Tales of the Jedi. And I got a look of, of this about a week or so ago. I got a screener access to it. Wasn't allowed to talk about it. I, I put out my social media response to it a few days ago, but I wasn't allowed to fully put out my review for it until yesterday when it officially came out 
on Disney Plus. And again, this is going to be a non-spoiler. There's there, there's some really cool surprises that I don't want to give away. I want people to experience it. So just to give my overall thoughts on it, I thought this was awesome and another piece of great Star Wars content, especially within the Dave Filoni sphere of animation, just just plain old Star Wars content that he's been doing overall. It just he is just a great master of filling in great details about the prequel era, and and he's done some great stuff in the original trilogy era and he's doing some great stuff post-original trilogy specifically with the Mandalorian book of Boba Fett and and soon to be Ahsoka Tano as well and I just think he does a great job of furthering the mythology of all these characters and I think the one that really gets his due in this anthology show in these shorts is Count Dooku and this show follows the kind of trajectory of both him and Ahsoka Tano and we really get to see a fleshed out layered Dooku in ways that we never saw in live action before, even in the Cologne Wars animated show that Filoni worked on with George Lucas. And it really gives you an idea of of how conflicted Dooku was before he turns to the dark side and what he was working with. And I think what this show does so well, too, is it showcases the flaws of the Jedi overall. And sure, there were these great warriors that were trying to be guardians of the peace, but people saw them as being also subjects of political power and corruption. And it was very interesting and see that from Dooku's perspective and made him kind of more of an anti-hero in a way. And I, and I think when you watch episode two, episode three, The Clone Wars, you can see that a little bit. And sure, he's more of, of plain evil by the point that we get to that to that point of Dooku's life. But I think it, it offered an interesting perspective of you can understand why he turned to the dark side. It wasn't that he just turned evil right away. There was a lead up to there. There was a reason for why he decided to go that route. And I think it was a very interesting area that Filoni really touched on that I didn't really think we needed to touch on, but that's the great, the genius, the geniusness of Dave Filoni's is that he makes you understand why we need to go back and plug in some of these pieces and show these things. And I think you can only do that in animation. And I think he's just a great connoisseur and master in utilizing that. So I think people who love what Dave Filoni does, who love Star Wars animation, who love the prequel era, this is going to be a great watch for you. And even though they are shorts, they're still about 15 minutes of I think the longest one is about 18 minutes with episode four, which is one of my favorites of the bunch that come from the six. And I think they're they're enjoyable. I think people will learn more insight into Ahsoka, which I think will help when we get to our live action show next year. And again, it, it focuses really a lot on Dooku and makes you kind of, of see him in a different light, I think. And it's really kind of cool to see that and explore his relationship with the Jedi, with Mace Windu, his, his, his Padawan. Some great surprises that I think connect to the Clone Wars animation, the overall prequel era. So it's really a lot of cool stuff that kind of comes from there. And I think, again, people will be very, very satisfied and have their palate quite quenched when it comes to Star Wars content this week between the new episode of Andor and Tales of the Jedi. But that does it for the review corner on the Sam Bissell podcast. What did you guys think of any of these episodes if you did watch them? Did you see the overall season of House of the Dragon? Which one was your favorite episode? If you did watch it, if you didn't watch it, are you going to watch it? When it comes to Andor, did you experience episode eight? If not, will you watch it? Let me know what you think about that down below. And same thing with Tales of the Jedi. I'd love to know what you all think about that. 
Now to move on to some news going on around the world of Hollywood. Again, a lot of stuff happened this week that is just a major, major shift into some of the biggest franchises going on in the world of entertainment this year, or really in this era right now. And the first one that's probably the biggest news to come out this year overall was the bombshell reveal that came in regards to Warner Brothers Discovery and specifically their DC Universe, which has kind of been the talk of the town over the last couple of months, ever since Warner Brothers was acquired by David Zaslav and Discovery. And it's been about kind of the revamping of the DC Universe and where it's going to be going for here. It's been going, it's been kind of turned over throughout the last five, six years between all the different company changes that have been going on that the studio has kind of gone through. And now it seems like it's a little bit more of a steady hand and David Zaslav wants there to be a little bit more of a steady flow of things going on a little bit more instead of all this clunkiness a little bit more streamlined in this plan that he has for 10 years and so there's been a lot of rumors and speculation of who could take over this job kind of be the quote-unquote Kevin Feige of the DC universe at one point it seemed like Dan Lin who is a big-time producer could take the spot but there were a lot of of of, of workarounds it, it, it just seems like conversations really kind of fell apart when it came to that potential hire but it seems like they have finally found the successors to Walter Hermada in the DC Universe, which will be titled, according to David Zaslav, not the DCU anymore, but it'll just be called the DCU, basically the DC Universe instead of the DC Extended Universe. So it will now be handed over from Walter Hermada to the co-heads of the DCU in Mr. James Gunn and Peter Safran, who are set to take over DC Studios, and they will be taking over not just the film division, but they will be taking over the film, TV, and animation studios over at DC Studios, basically controlling the entire, excuse me, empire that encases that company. And they will be specifically reporting to David Zaslav, they'll be working in counterpart to people such as as Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi, who are the two co-chairs of Warner Brothers Film Division overall. And he will be they will be also reporting and 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 creating with people such as Casey Bloys, who is the head of HBO and HBO Max. And basically they are going James Gunn and Peter Safran are the new head honchos over at DCU. And this comes from the exclusive report from the Hollywood Reporter, which kind of talks about the lead up to how this came to be. So according to them, in recent weeks, Gunn and Safran were spotted on the Warner Brothers lot meeting with Warner's film co-chair Mike DeLuca about future projects. And according to sources, the initial overture to Safran and Gunn came from DeLuca over the summer, even as the studio was in shaky talks with producer Dan Lin to take over the job. Gunn will focus on the creative side of things, while Safran will focus on the business and production side. Both are expected to continue to direct and produce projects, respectively. They will report directly to Zaz and work closely with Warner's film bosses DeLuca and Pamela Abdi. Sources say the deal runs for four years and Gunn will be exclusive to DC. The goal is for them not to just be producers but to truly function as executives even as Gunn will occasionally hone a movie. Over the summer, the team started to look at emulating the Pixar model in which you have producers and filmmakers working as executives. That has never been tried in the live action space. So 
a lot to kind of take from that overall excerpt from the Hollywood Reporter. But basically, again, it's that James Gunn and 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 Saffron are basically the heads of this studio. They are the head honchos. They are the people that everyone will be reporting to and looking at. And I think that kind of brings up a lot of questions because of the overall nature of DC right now. We have all these multiple different corners going on. Are they running everything? So according to also from the Hollywood Reporter, when it comes to the Joker sequel, which we'll see Todd Phillips returning to direct, you have Walking Phoenix, Lady Gaga coming into that into that film as well. That'll be under the eye of Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi. So that film is going to be an overall Warner Brothers movie. And when it comes to the Matt Reeves Batman universe, which is its own little sector of the of the DC universe, it seems like that right now is still unclear if Matt Reeves will be working alongside James Gunn and and, and Saffron, or if he'll be reporting to DeLuca and Pamela Abdi, or even somebody else entirely. So that still is up in the air right now. But everything else when it comes to Black Adam, Suicide Squad, Peacemaker, Blue Beetle, Flash, Shazam, Aquaman, all those movies going forward, and a new Wonder Woman film, a new Man of Steel film, all that will be under the supervision of James Gunn and Peter Safran. So we all, just to kind of give a little bit of a background on both of these guys, we all know who James Gunn is for the most part. He is the man who kind of helped revamp the Marvel Cinematic Universe and bring in a different kind of tone, different kind of set of characters with Guardians of the Galaxy. He did it with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And then, of course, he hit a little bit of controversy before taking on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which he was fired from Disney because of years and years old tweets that kind of put him in kind of the cancel culture area for a little bit. But then, like a phoenix, he rose up from the ashes, was hired over at DC to work on any project that he wanted, and he decided to do the Suicide Squad. And then, when it came to working with the Marvel Cinematic Universe again, Alan Horn, who was running the film division over there at the time had a change of heart and both him Kevin Feige Bob Iger decided to rehire James Gunn to once again work on Guardians of the Galaxy volume 3 so with the success the kind of success pandemic wise from the Suicide Squad he worked on Peacemaker season 1 which turned out to be a big hit for HBO Max and DC and there's already working on a season 2 for that show he now is working on both the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special which we'll be getting into a little later on and of course working on next year's summer big hit potential big hit and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 before officially taking over for the DC slate, which he, him and Saffron are effectively going to be taking over a week from now on November 1st. So right away, he's gonna James Gunn is going to have his hands full on a lot of different stuff once again. And then to go over to the resume of Peter Saffron. And some people might be wondering, well, we know who James Gunn is, but who the hell is Peter Saffron? Well, he's not just a scrub. He's not just somebody that got this job because of connections or anything like that. He is somebody that is fully entrenched in film producing and has helped produce some of the biggest biggest franchise films over the last couple years and not just in dc but also in another warner brothers hit franchise that has kind of come out of nowhere so he's worked on dc films such as suicide squad peacemaker which is why he wanted to work with james gunn they both have a really good relationship together he also worked on the first aquaman he's a producer on aquaman the lost kingdom he's a, a producer on the first two shazam films and also he is a producer on the conjuring universe which overall has grossed over two billion dollars at the box 
box office. And it's kind of one of those things where if you were to say after the first two Conjuring films that there would be spinoffs to spinoffs to these characters that we met, you would have it would have you would have said, get out of here with that. There's no way. Well, he is one of the main producers behind that as well. So he knows how to create a universe and really kind of develop financially successful films. And he wouldn't have done this again without James Gunn working with him whatsoever. So again, this is, I think, a great tandem for what they want to accomplish. And then kind of going over to the report that they want this kind of be like Pixar, where you have a creative and an executive. I think that's going to be a very good idea for having somebody that knows the finances, knows the business, and then having the creative mind of James Gunn, who knows these characters, knows these worlds, and is somebody who is a great storyteller. And I think that it's going to be very interesting to see where James Gunn and Saffron go with the ideas. Because when we talk about James Gunn, he's somebody who is very, he goes a little bit more obscure. So now that he has all these characters, these 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 lower level characters that he works with, but also the big hitters in Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Flash, all these characters, Wonder Woman, what are you going to do with them? And how are you going to incorporate them into all this? And he is, of course, somebody that comes over from the MCU. And, not, and sure, he he is somebody that didn't work on Infinity War Endgame, but his characters were a part of that. And even though he created standalone films, something like Guardians of the Galaxy is essential to the Infinity Saga and to connecting to Infinity War and Endgame. And he's worked closely with Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige at one point wanted to make James Gunn kind of the head of the, the cosmic universe of the connections that go on within the MCU. So he knows the talents that James Gunn is able to bring to the table. And even when he look at kind of the connections that are coming over the last couple of DCU entries from Suicide Squad, Peacemaker, even Black Adam, they all include James Gunn characters throughout them, such as Amanda Waller. There's another surprise character that comes in Black Adam as well that comes from what James, some of James Gunn's characters. So clearly, the, James Gunn helped with building blocks for where DC wants to go. And it's going to be very interesting to see where some of these other things happen as well. What's going to be happening with Ezra Miller in The Flash? What's going to be happening with Dwayne Johnson and Black Adam and what he wants to do in the DC universe going forward? What's going to happen with Henry Cavill now that it's confirmed from him, from Dwayne Johnson and his whole team, that Henry Cavill is going to be the Superman moving forward? How is that all going to kind of co-escalate and and kind of coexist together? It's going to be very, very interesting, but I think this is a system that can work. I think people are going to be very excited about this. I'm very excited about it. I think having James Gunn be a part of this and Peter Safran, they're respected within the industry, and I think they're going to be respected in finding talent to work alongside of them and work with them and what they want to do, and that's exactly what Kevin Feige kind of did, and I'm not going to be labeling labeling them as the Kevin Feige's of the DC Universe. They're their own people. They're going to have to kind of lead us into this new era of DC that we're going to have to kind of go with, and it's going to be very interesting to see now that they have already kind of established projects with Shazam 2, The Flash, Aquaman 2, you have Blue Beetle coming out, which Peter Safran is also producer on that project as well. So that's going to be safe for a lot of people that worry that that would kind of get canceled. That one is most likely going to stay where it is right now since it is a part of his company. He is a producer on it. So I'm sure he wants to make sure that film comes out and does well. It's After that, it's going to be very curious to see where DC goes from there. So I think it's very, very exciting 
I, I love this decision. I think it's it's a surprising decision for some people. I was surprised by it. I thought that James Gunn would be a big proponent of DC moving forward as a director and writer. And it sounds like he's still going to do that, but it's going to be more on a bigger stage than I think he probably ever imagined. And it's a great story for him considering, again, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. He was, he was gone, but then he came back up and he now has this incredibly amazing position that I'm sure he is excited about about and he's going to bring some of the talents that he brought from the MCU into the DC universe when it comes to making these kind of decisions and like Kevin Feige said at the Black Panther Wakanda Forever premiere last night once he's done with Marvel in these next six months or so seven eight months then he'll be first in line to see what James Gunn does and I think this kind of closes the book on James Gunn in the MCU maybe once he's done with with DC he comes back but if DC is very successful in their four years I'm sure Warner Brothers will be wanting to re-up their contracts and have them continue on what they want to do so I think this is the only the beginning of it I think DC fans are going to be a little bit are going to be excited at first but they're going to want to see okay where is this moving forward because they have these projects that they have to finish up now but once those projects are done where are things going to be leading after that so i'm going to be very curious to see what happens in 2023 2024 and moving forward in the future so what do you guys think about this news in regards to James Gunn and Peter Safran taking over the DC universe and being the new leadership over there. Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And then moving back over to a galaxy far, far away, there is some major news coming out of Lucasfilm and in the kind of lead up to their film slate. And while TV has been dominating and streaming has been dominating the Star Wars universe since really 2019 with The Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now we have Andor taking over. We're going to have Ahsoka next year, season three of Mando. We're going to have Skeleton Crew. The list goes on and on, Andor season two. The big question, though, that is coming out right now, especially since it's been about three years or so since Rise of Skywalker in 2019, where's the next movie? And of course, we've had we've had cancellations we've had deals backed out of there's been a whole lot of drama coming out of the film slate of things right now but it seems like maybe things could be on a little bit better footing right now as there's major headway on one of the big on one star wars project that has kind of been under wraps for a long time until this week and it was first announced by deadline that damon lindelof which it was kind of reported on a few months ago from the anklers jeff snyder that damon lindelof was working on a secret star wars project and it didn't really kind of gain a lot of traction but this week the wheels really started turning on this story as it came over from deadline first that lindelof who if you live in the tv world he was one of the creators of Lost, The Leftovers, which is a very underrated show, and also came out with the highly acclaimed, award-winning, limited series Watchmen, which was amazing. I highly recommend people check that show out on HBO. He was the one that created all those amazing shows, and he is a writer on this brand new Star Wars show that is coming out, and has found a director in Charmaine Obiad Chinoy, who, if you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe, she was actually a director on a few episodes of Miss Marvel, which again is one of my favorite shows in the MCU right now. It's one of my favorite projects to come out of Marvel this year in 2022. And so I'm really, really excited to see where that show goes from there. But the direction that show was impeccable. It was amazing. And she was one of the reasons behind that. And according to Deadline, 
Insiders say the script is still being written, which means production is likely far out. That said, sources add it was important to Lucasfilm and Lindelof that a director be brought on so that, per that, that person's own vision of where they see this story headed gets included in the script. And it was also reported from Deadline that this film is a very much a guarded secret within Hollywood circles right now. It's a very much a tight-knit group that is working on this project right now. So it's amazing that all this information even was able to get out. It seems, according to also reports, it seems that the most momentum, it is the most momentum, momentous thing going forward on the film side of Star Wars right now. And then the following day came out from The Hollywood Reporter, which revealed a few more interesting details when it came to the writer's room and some specific potential plot points or circumstances surrounding where this new Star Wars film could take place within the universe. So according to The Hollywood Reporter, sources tell the site that Lindelof is writing the new Star Wars film with Justin Britt Gibson, a young and rising writer who worked as an executive story editor on Guillermo del Toro's vampire drama The Strain and wrote episodes of Stars The Counterpart, a series that deals with parallel dimensions and star J.K. Simmons. Brett Gibson, however, comes to the job after a secret. It's always a secret with Star Wars, isn't it? Writer's room that began coming together after this year's Star Wars celebration. The room held a two-week session in July, and at the table were Patrick Somerville, who worked with Lindelof on Leftovers, and then went on to create the Buzzy Station 11, which is a highly amazing show. I highly recommend people check it out. Raynum McClendon, who is a consulting producer on Lucasfilm's own Obi-Wan Kenobi and writer on the company's upcoming Willow series, Andy Greenwald, the creator of the 2019 Rosario Dawson crime drama, Bribe Bitch. And also someone who might have been a part of the, 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 the story room and the writer's room, but is unconfirmed at this time, was protege of Star Wars creator George Lucas and Dave Filoni. After breaking the story, Lindelof and Britt Gibson have been clacking away at the keyboards. And then to go over into some of the other details that come from The Hollywood Reporter into where th this film might be set within the Star Wars universe and the circumstances around it. So according to Hollywood Reporter, it's going to be set as a standalone film, but if successful, could lead to more in the French, in this franchise, in this kind of film set, down the line, if it is successful for the company, it is apparently rumored to take place after Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, but it will not be a part of the Skywalker saga overall. However, even though it won't be in the Skywalker saga, some characters within the sequel trilogy could potentially appear in the film. Did you get all that? Did, were you able to follow all that? Did you get it all? If you, if you didn't, let me know. Let me know on, on Twitter. Let me know if you didn't. But there's a lot going on with this story right now. And I think the first thing that comes to mind, I think it comes to mind for a lot of Star Wars fans overall, when it comes to the film slate is... Yeah, okay, sure. I'll, I'll believe it when I see a trailer. I'll believe it when I see a film slate or production set pictures and, and whatnot. I'll believe it when that happens. I don't even think fans will get excited when it comes to the announcement of this project whenever it is confirmed by Lucasfilm. And I think a big part of that, and it was actually rumored, what kind of kicked everything off within this kind of Star Wars news cycle that we got this week was that according to Puck News, Disney themselves had asked President of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, to stop announcing projects uh, uh, happening 
within the Star Wars universe because they've gotten burned so many times before, whether it's with Rogue Squadron with Patty Jenkins, where it was announced that was happening, but then creative differences happened and, and that fell apart. The Benoff and Weiss, Lord and Miller, it's so many different things. It seems like maybe Taika Waititi's film might not happen, given that they haven't really even started coming up with a story for that film. You have Kevin Feige, Feige's Star Wars film, which it doesn't even seem like that's going to be on the table for at least maybe another decade, considering that Feige He's really busy with the MCU right now. And Michael Waldron, who's a writer on there, was just hired to do Secret Wars. So that's going to be take priority over a Star Wars film. So that might not even be in the, in the docket for another decade plus, potentially, if it even does happen. So there's no concrete Star Wars film right now. But if there's anyone that has a lot of confidence, it's the fact that it seems like they're doing their due diligence of creating a story, creating the characters, and then announce that this film is happening and then going into production. Because that's what needs to happen with Star Wars. They just need to get a film into production. They basically should just come out whenever Star Wars Celebration happens next year or at a D23 event or even just on social media in general to say, hey guys, guess what? A new Star Wars film is coming out. We're shooting it right now. It's got this person directing, these people in the cast, and we're shooting it right now. It'll be in theaters in so-and-so date. That's what they should really do because I don't think a lot of people have confidence within this happening. And even though this all sounds intriguing, and I think the fact that it's going to be its own separate thing. I like the fact that it's going to be taking place after The Rise of Skywalker. Whatever whatever you think about the sequel trilogy, I do think that as cool as it is to have stuff between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens right now with what Floating and Favreau are doing and then kind of plugging in some pieces within Andor and Obi-Wan and what Filoni does in Animated, that's cool, but I want to see new stuff. I want to see stuff that takes place either years ago like what Acolyte is doing or take place in new landscapes after Rise of Skywalker. What hap- I want to know what happens in the universe. What's happening after those events? And hopefully Lindelof is, and, and his writing staff with, with Justin Brett Gibson is creating something really cool with that. And if, if, if sequel characters come up, I'm fine with that. Personally, I like the sequel characters. Now, you might not like the stories that they went on, but I think that the characters overall were very intriguing and I would love to see them come Kind of pop back up like we do see them in the shows and i think you, you the galaxy is big and vast and sometimes you run into some of these characters so i wouldn't mind seeing that happen if it fits the story that they want to tell within this universe and within that that specific story in that specific movie so i wouldn't mind that whatsoever it's just the fact that it sounds interesting but will it actually happen? So I think that's really where a lot of people are going to be holed up when it comes to this this news. Sounds great, but will it actually happen? Will we actually see this come to fruition? Now, again, it's not like they announced this. This came from news sources. This came. This was a news report. This isn't. This is from insiders. This isn't Lucasfilm confirming anything. So it leads a little bit more optimistic that they are kind of trying. They are trying to keep it as internal as possible. And the fact that they have a director now, the fact that they have no cast, but they're writing it right now, I think it's take as much time as we possibly can. If I had to guess, this is probably going to try to hit for that 2025 release date. I don't think we're going to get a Star Wars film next year. It, it's not even on the docket anymore. So I think 
they're aiming for that 2025 date to be the the official start of a new Star Wars film on the dock. And at that time, it'll be 10 years since The Force Awakens came out. So they can kind of go into celebrating. It's been 10 years since Star Wars kind of made its grand return. They can really kind of hone into that and start off in a brand new way, brand new stories, brand new characters within this wide, vast, unknown world of Star Wars that we haven't even ever gotten into. It's all them. It's a blank canvas. And so I think they can really play into that if it all kind of works in their favor, if that is a direction and that that's the release date that they decide to go with. So again, all sounds promising, but again, I think for a lot of fans, and I can understand it, and I'm one of them too, believe it when we see it, when it actually goes into production. We need to see production photos and cast announcements for this to actually be actually happening. So we'll see, but from the, the reports that have been coming out, this does sound very intriguing. I'm a big fan of what Lindelof has done with Watchmen, with Leftovers. I love those shows. So I think he, he brings some good credibility to it. And like the report and Hollywood Reporter does say, it is true. And if you go back and read stories about what he did with Watchmen, given that it deals with kind of race and diversity and all these different things, he had a very diverse writer's room with Watchmen. And there's stories about him kind of having to kind of put his ego aside and listen to the writer's room and listen to the collaborative kind of kind of remarks that his group gave to him. And I think he's bringing that to the Star Wars film right now. So I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with this. And, and I think he's going to tell a really interesting story with this film. So what do you guys think about this secret Star Wars film project that could kind of be the one that revamps the film slate right now? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And now moving on to some trending trailers that I want to get into that were pretty exciting that came out this weekend, kind of sticking within the big franchises that are kind of hot right now. We're going to be transferring over to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and with all kind of the hype and rave about Black Panther Wakanda Forever right now, which we'll get into on the final list on the podcast today. There is another film that is set on the horizon that people I think aren't looking at right now, which is which is which is understandable. Black Panther is the big thing right now, but of course with Marvel, it's all, always about looking to the future as well. And the next film after Wakanda Forever is the first feature film of Phase Five and the first entry of Phase Five, and that is the third film in the Ant Man franchise, Ant Man of the Wasp: Quantum Mania. I've been in, interested in this film. I, again, I, I really enjoy and have a lot of fun with the two Ant Man films that came before, but it seems like they were going to be taking a very different approach to this and really for the first time this Ant-Man Ant-Man is going to be I think a big pinnacle focus of of the Marvel Cinematic Universe the other two films are very much kind of standalone they don't really focus on the wider MCU they focus on on Scott Lane his characters his world and then he kind of fits in when he goes into Civil War Avengers Endgame but it's not like his films have huge ramifications of the Marvel Cinematic Universe it seems like this film is really going to be playing into that a little bit more with the quantum realm and kind of leading off of what we got with Avengers Endgame and and just judging from this first trailer, which I very much enjoyed, it definitely seems like it is going to be very different from the other two Ammon films, which were a little bit more kind of grounded and, again, played on the themes of family and, and, and were more kind of robbery heist films or kind of cat and mouse games. This one seems like it's going to be lending into kind of the cosmos a little bit more, very much reminiscent of a Guardians or a Thor Ragnarok in, in a very interesting way. And it looks grand. It looks epic. When you see those visual effect shots in the Quantum Realm, 
so many different details and layers of the quantum realm itself that we never thought would be possible or never thought that actually a whole universe lived under there. It's very, very interesting. And I think you see it in Peyton Reed that he's working on the volume, which was reported that this is going to be dealing with the stagecraft technology, which he's worked with when working on the the two episodes that he did on season two of The Mandalorian. And I think you see the confidence that he has in handling something that's a little bit more bigger budget than Ant-Man of the Wasp or the first Ant-Man film. And the VFX look awesome. I, I have no complaints about them whatsoever. They look natural in a way. They don't look kind of wishy-washy. So I really like some of the, the, the characters and features that come alongside with it. And of course, the big highlight of the whole trailer and even the poster itself, Kang the Conqueror, Jonathan Majors making another return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, really making his debut as Kang the Conqueror himself in the MCU with this film. Even though he was in the final episode of Loki, it was a different variant of that character. This is Kang the Conqueror making his debut in the MCU as the official new big bad of the Marvel Cinematic Universe taking over for Thanos. And... He looks awesome. I mean, it looks great. The costume looks great when you see the little snippets that you see of him. It looks awesome. I'm excited to see more Janet Van Dyne, who was played by Michelle Pfeiffer. We only got really kind of a cameo appearance from her in the last one, even though her character was a big presence in that film. We don't see her until the last 15 minutes of the film. So to get more of her, her relationship with with Hope and 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 with with Hank and then with Scott and the whole family and her knowledge of the quantum realm is going to be great as well. And Seeing all that family dynamic come together is going to be really cool. And seeing Catherine Newton come in as Cassie Lane is going to be exciting. So I'm really, really intrigued by this film and what it's going to offer to the table. And I know it's going to be a big film for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's going to kick off Phase 5, I think, in a really, really cool way. So I'm very excited about this. It hits theaters on February 16th of 2023. So... Another peculiar date that Marvel has never hit that early in the year. So, again, I think Marvel is release date proof at this point. They can hit wherever they want, and I think they'll get big numbers for their film. So, I think they realize that, and they're putting it at the beginning of the year because it is going to be another crazy year for the MCU in 2023, and it's all going to be kicked off by Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. And then to kind of keep within the Marvel Cinematic Universe for something that is going to be kind of wrapping up the 2020 year with a nice bow and that is going to be the guardians of the galaxy holiday special and speaking of james gunn this was written directed by him the man himself who also made this in conjunction with next year's big potential summer blockbuster and guardians of the galaxy volume three but this was at first going to be the first major special that we got from the mcu but of course that was first taken over by the halloween special and werewolf by night which i absolutely loved and seeing what they can do with the specials which they can kind of go out a little bit more and do some weird kooky things that they might not be able to do even on a Disney Plus show or in a movie that they can just do in a little nice, concise hour or a little under an hour kind of special. And it seems like that's what James Gunn's doing with with the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, where it very much feels like a cheesy Hallmark special in the coolest way possible. And it's only something that James Gunn, I think, himself could actually pull off in his genius kind of way, where it it looks like they're on Earth, they're trying to cheer Peter, and it just looks it just looks fun. And it's there's an awesome surprise that I think connects with the Guardians of the Galaxy in a really cool way. And I'm really excited to see the dynamic 
dynamic of these characters. I thought we were a little kind of short shrived of seeing them in Thor, Thor Love and Thunder. I would have liked to see a little bit more of that dynamic. Even though it was a Thor film, it felt a little rushed to see them. So to kind of see them post Endgame, post Gamora, um, with Nebula kind of free of Thanos' control, how she fits into the, to the Guardians a little bit more. I'm very excited to see how that all kind of comes together. And how this transitions over to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But this looks fun. That's all I can really say about it. It looks fun, cheesy, yes, but I think that's the intention that Gunn was going for. And I'm very excited to see Cosmo kind of come into it. Maria Bakalova coming into the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to be fun. So I'm all for, for this. I'm all for Quantum Mania. I'm all for this holiday special. And I'm all for more MCU. Whenever we get more MCU, it's more the merrier for me. What did you guys think about both of these two trailers with Ant-Man of the Wasp Quantumania and Guardians of the Galaxy, the holiday special trailer? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts below. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the podcast today is, of course, sticking with the Marvel Cinematic Universe because when do we ever stop talking about Marvel? Because they're all all over the news and we're getting into the time of year now where we're, where we're getting to a big MCU release and that is usually beginned by the world premiere for the a specific for said film. And this said film, of course, is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the highly anticipated film that I think for a lot of people is for them one of the most anticipated films of the year. When looking at the Marvel projects that came out this year, this probably topped their list. This is a big one. This is coming off the heels of the widely successful cultural phenomenon that was Black Panther in 2018. And then, of course, you add on to the fact that we lost Chadwick Boseman in 2020. How is this film going to carry on? They weren't going to recast the character. They were going to honor him in this film. The trailers have looked phenomenal. We just got the announcement that Rihanna is going to be making her comeback. Her hiatus is over, and she's not just doing it with an album. She's coming over to the Marvel Cinematic Universe to grace her presence with two of amazing songs reportedly one that is said to come out at midnight tonight friday i mean the stars are set for this film to do so well but of course the big thing that comes out of it is and it comes out with any sequel follow-up to a major film beforehand how do you follow up how can you follow up with a film like black panther can it be as good if not dare i say better than than the the than the first film. And again, with everything that went on with this film, could Ryan Cooler, who is the, one of the co-writers and the director of this film, pull it off? And judging by the early reactions coming from people that saw the film at the world premiere and screeners yesterday, it seems like Ryan Coogler was able to pay it off in spades and a whole lot more. And the, and the reactions coming in from social media are flooding in right now. So we're gonna get kick it off, of course, starting off with some people that we know. And we're gonna start off with our good friend over at Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes. That is, of course, Eric Davis. And he just got out of the Black Panther Wakanda Forever screening. And this is what he had to say about the film. Wow, Wakanda Forever is beyond great, absolutely gripping, exciting, and incredibly emotional from start to finish. Honestly, the Black Panther films are just on another level, artistically and narratively phenomenal. This is the most powerful film I have watched this year. 
just wow. This is the first MCU film where I cried through the end credits. Everyone around me was a mess. Ryan Coogler and the team crafted one of the great sequels, hands down. A beautiful story about finding strength and grief and community to uplift. A film that brings its whole heart and soul. Man, I just got goosebumps reading that whole thing. Okay, so Eric seems to have loved it. I'm pumped about what he has to say. I usually kind of fall in line with what Eric Davis kind of writes. I'm, I really am, I like to think positively about a lot of these films. So he and I usually are on the same wavelength. So I'm very, very excited to see this film in a couple of weeks. Now moving on over to a few other reviews that came out on social media. Again, the review embargo is still under embargo, but the social media embargo, it seems like there was none that once people were able to get out of the screening and see the film, they're able to post what they thought on social media. So to continue on, Steve Weintraub over at Collider had this to say about the film. I know you don't believe when people come out of a world premiere and say a movie is awesome, but Black Panther Wakanda Forever is a fantastic sequel and a great movie. I knew it'd be emotional and it was. Expect your eyes to leak. Great job, Ryan Coogler. And then they also had this to say about the film. Another reason I'm so impressed with Black Panther Wakanda Forever is Ryan Coogler had the impossible task of trying to make a sequel without Chadwick Boseman and made it feel respectable, but also kept keep the franchise going and he hit a home run, going to be a huge hit for Marvel Studios. And then also over at Collider, Perry Nemiroff had this to say, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is excellent, an immensely powerful story of, of forging forward, shattering at times, but also beautifully cathartic and heartening. Cannot get over how well the film earns that title and then moving on over to some other people that were able to see the film Sean O'Connell who we had on about a year ago to talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League he is over from the real blend and cinema blend had this to say about the film Ryan Coogler's Black Panther Wakanda Forever above all else is cathartic an emotional movie about loss legacy and healing the story is intimate but vast with global power struggles and palace intrigue Tenoch Coretta's Namor is a force better than I hoped so much to discuss and then clean and Davis over at Variety, who is their awards editor, had this to say, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is a beautiful tribute to Chadwick Boseman, visual stunner with Angela Bassett commanding every scene she inhabits. Rihanna's Lift Me Up will do that for many. Another great post-credit scene that's genuinely a jaw-dropper. Don't know about Oscars. And of course, Black Panther, the first film was nominated for, I believe, six or seven Oscars, including the first ever comic book film to be nominated for Best Picture. And then to kind of round it all off, I want to go down to Drew Taylor, who had this to say about the film. Black Panther Wakanda Forever prioritizes sentiment over spectacle, and for the most part, it's a transporting and engrossing triumph, arguably Marvel Studios' most deeply felt and emotionally resonant extravaganza. Also, Lookwood's score is an all-timer. And the, the, it seems like it just goes on and on and on. I'm going to try to find a few more reactions that I can get about the film overall. But for the most part, a lot of these reviews and, and reactions are overwhelmingly great. Now, it doesn't seem like it hits over the levels of Black Panther, but it sounds like it honors what Chadwick did and also is able to to be its own thing. And I think that's a great thing about Ryan Cooler and why I love him to pieces. And I think he's one of the best directors in the game right now is he's able to deliver on just about every level. He takes his time with each project. He invests in every single project that he's a part of from the very beginning to the very end. And so for him, this has got to be great to hear all this stuff. And a few more that I want to get into real quick. There's another one from Brandon Davis that that's good, but not great like some of these other reactions. But this is what he had to say. 
Black Panther Wakanda Forever is epic, especially in scope. Namor is one of the better villains in the MCU has to offer. Tenel Coretta just kills it. Emotions are heavy. Ryan Cooler ups his game on the action. It's a lot to take in, balance so much, and is powerfully good. So uh, I was wrong, actually. It's a great review from, from Brandon Davis. So it seems like everyone is on the Black Panther Wakanda Forever train. And uh, again, I am, I am really, really excited about this film. The tracking for it has been around 170 million plus. It isn't, there isn't a distinct number that it's between but honestly for me it was always about what can the reviews do because I think this film could hit the threshold of $200 million just given the fact that it's Black Panther, the fact that Chadwick Boseman passed. A lot of people want to see how they handle this property. They love the film so much. They love these just these characters in general, this world that's so popular. I would put it on the level of a Spider-Man or an Iron Man. I think it, it, it's reached that level because of what Ryan Coogler and everyone did on that first film. But I think with the reviews, it's going to push it over the edge. And I, and I I honestly see this film, I can see it eclipsing the Black Panther opening weekend in 2018, which is around 207 or so million dollars. And I could honestly see it right now getting between 210 and 220 million dollars. However, I would not be shocked if it pulls off kind of like a Spider-Man No Way Home, even if that was in the pandemic. And we didn't really know the tracking was a lot more wonky than it even is now. It's a little bit more kind of, of solidified nowadays than it even was back in 2021 in December. But it could do even better. It's going to really depend on on the pre-sale on the pre-sale tickets and the word of mouth, and I think the people that maybe gain more attention to it in the next couple of weeks and see the reviews for this film. So right now, I have it played between 210, 220. I'll give a more definitive answer in the next two weeks before I see the film before it releases in theaters on November 11th, but this film's gonna be big. This film is gonna be huge, and it is going to do major, major numbers for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think for a lot of people that were saying, is Marvel a notch down? Are they really, uh, have they taken a step back? It seems like Black Panther Wakanda Forever showcases that even though they try some things different, it might not work. When they wanna be good, Marvel Studios will be good, and I think it's gonna come out with a force, both critically and financially. I think this is gonna be a huge, huge film to coincide alongside Avatar The Way of Water, which we'll get into. And of course, the next couple of weeks, once they start revving up their promotional campaign as well. But right now, it's all about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We're going to be talking about it a lot on the podcast in the, in the next couple of weeks as we ramp up to its its eventual release date on November 11th. But this is a great start for the campaign, for the promotional tour. This is a great start for the film overall. And I'm very excited to see it in the next couple of weeks as well. What do you guys think about these early reactions for Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and make sure to check out the other amazing shows on the Podcast Solutions, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, make sure to check out The Daily Grind, a week motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson give you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. 
also along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the Podcast Solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Kennedy Trios, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. Find me on Twitter, Episode Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Samusel. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.